so much again for listening. For this episode and for the occasional other episode, I'm going to do something a little bit different from the normal podcast. This format was actually my original idea for a rock and roll rabbit hole podcast, which was picking an artist, a band, album, or a single musician that I love, but flies a little bit under the normal radar and climb deep into their hole and tell a bit of their story, or at least their story through my ears, using interviews, songs, and some other golden magic. I'm going to call these episodes the series and I hope you enjoy them as much as they frustrate me to put them together. As always, it's just a little bit of positive fanboy fluff that hopefully inspires someone to check out an artist or record that maybe you don't know, that you missed or you forgot about, or by hearing it again at a different time of your life you may connect with now, or none of the above. And as always, I really don't give a shit, as I always learn a bunch and the research is always frustratingly a heap of fun for me. Visit the website, arockandrollrabbithole.com, for all the normal episodes, bonus episodes, and playlists of all of the great music used in each episode. Follow the podcast on Instagram and Facebook, arockandrollrabbitholepodcast, and you can say hi to me there too. Please subscribe, share, and rate and review the podcast on the Purple Apple Podcast app on your iPhone or wherever you listen. That is always super helpful and appreciated. Anyway, that's enough fluff. Welcome to the series. Here goes. But I'm less the moon cost to pass. Unless continents collide. Nothing's gonna make me break from her side. So after 24 normal episodes and six bonus episodes, I'm going to start the series by climbing under the kilt and into the hole of a band I have spread some love to in a number of previous episodes. The band is Dalimitri, the singer and main songwriter is also a solo artist in his own right and his name is Justin Curry. Dalimitri have a new album out this year and it's called Fatal Mistakes, it's their first album in about 20 years. In my opinion, Dalimitri and Justin Curry together have as good a 20 song mixtape vibe best of as any other band ever, but in my world still fall under the never heard of them or oh I know that song but I never knew who sang it category. So for my 31st episode release and my first of the series I present 25 years is too long to wait for a curry. So here's a very very quick history. They were formed in 1980 in Glasgow, Scotland. They've sold about 6 million copies worldwide. Delamitri have had quite a revolving lineup. About 14 members have been through their ranks. Justin Curry has been in the band since it started. Guitarist and second songwriter Ian Harvey joined in 1982. 
They've been the mainstays of the band. And keyboard player Andy Alston has been with the band since 1989. Up until 2002, the band had released six albums. Self-titled in 1985, Waking Hours in 1989, Change Everything in 1992, Twisted in 1995, Some Other Suckers Parade in 1997, and Can You Do Me Good in 2002, along with a few compilations and B-side records. Check out my Instagram feed for my Delamitri collection, and please forgive me for my use of CDs for the first time on the Instagram photos, but a lot of Delamitri and Justin Curry's music wasn't released on vinyl, or not that I can see anyway. But if you are out there somewhere in the world and you do see some on vinyl, hit me up. I rate Justin Curry right up there with the best lyric writers of all time. And I also think he's a great, great singer and his vocal tone is a great match for his lyrics. So I'm just going to start rabbit hole digging on Dalimitri and Justin Curry and see where it leads us. You can click the red button on the right hand side of your headphones for some Scottish to English translations and the green button on your left hand side will translate Australian to English. So Delamitri's first album was self-titled and it was released in 1985 and it's a way different sound to the rest of their records. A little bit Billy Bragg, early R.E.M. Smiths and Justin's vocal tone and style is almost unrecognisable. Check out a bit of one of the singles released from the album called Hammering Heart. Here's Delamitri guitarist Ian Harvey talking about the record and then singer Justin Curry chimes in. I listened to the very first album, the, the <laughs> Delamitri, um, when we were doing the 2014 tour and I hadn't yeah. listened to it for years because we were thinking of the songs to do. And I say I was totally fascinated by it. I thought it was... I, I, people had always, I know that people that really love it and I'd always sort of thought, oh, I don't know. And I listened to it and I, I did think, oh gosh, I, I really understood why people liked it. <laughs> <laughs> I still liked it, you know. I mean, it- well, the first album, the Christmas album, is impossible because all the, there's no chords and there's so it's just it depends on all the individual parts. So we we decided we were going to do a song off that album, and we just couldn't find something that we could convert into normality. Yeah. <laughs> but we ended up doing a song called Hammering Heart, which I had to take down a tone to sing it, and we had to slow it down really significantly. <laughs> so we sort we ended up doing it like the Velvet Underground, like sort of drone rock, because it was impossible. You know, because we were teenagers. You yeah. Know. I do really like the self-titled album, but it does sound like a totally different band. The band themselves often don't even call this their first record, which you will hear here. How did you find that first album was received? Uh, the, the, the one before we... Sorry, the second album. Sorry, I yeah. the first album. The first so, album do I, so, do I, so do I. So do I. So do I. Here's Justin Curry talking about the first self-titled record and the band toying with a name change with the change of direction for the second record. We did think about changing the name and our manager, Barbara Shores, at the time persuaded us not to because she thought she thought the American audience would stick with us, which they did, whereas the British audience... I mean, I'm talking just a few thousand people here, you know, maybe 15,000 people in the States, 
at the most and maybe 7,000 people in the UK. So quite a small national audience. Uh, and we lost the vast majority of the British audience because they were kind of, a lot of them were like cool indie kids uh, or real, really intense kind of geeky people that were very intense about the kind of music they listened to in very particular so they, they were just, they felt betrayed by the change in the way the American audience didn't. So we decided not to change the name. But in a way, it would have been the first album by, by a band with a different name. So it was a different lineup and it, it did sound very different. Here's guitarist Ian Harvey talking about the change of sound and some similarities. I really love his honesty about his desire to stay in the music industry and still make interesting music that more people would consume. You know, I listened to the record as an album, to listen to Waking Hours as an album for the first time in quite a long time, uh, last week before we were setting this up. And it actually occurred to me how similar it was in some respects to the first album. You know, because that, that is a big thing about how different it is. And, and it is different in the sense that we went for more traditional structures. But in terms of the lyrics and what it's about, actually, I think it's very similar. It still felt surprisingly youthful to me when I listen to it. It's very youthful. Aye. You know, and at the time we thought we were making a big sort of man's record, but it still <laughs> is quite... Um, you can hear the boys. You can hear the boys at work in there. So, I mean, I'm sidestepping the question, but actually I don't think it's as dissimilar as people make out. But I, mean, I, guess, I guess it is much more sort of commercially accessible than the first album. Yeah, I mean, we're kind, kind of, of... I mean, self-consciously doing that. I mean, we knew we wanted to be guys who made records for a living and you've got to sort of come up with I mean, you've got to get your head around how you're going to how you're going to do that at some point there was a sort of political fra- musical political framework that you had to operate within uh-huh. and we kind of we just kind of junked that and yeah. thought, well, that's a really silly idea you know because we were writing stuff that was good and we thought why don't we just why don't we just go with this and here's a bit of the story behind the recording of waking hours Going back to this record myself, I thought, God, the, the band is it's really locked. And it really there's a precision about it for me, the, the kind of sound of it. So how much of that was that, that a long rehearsal process? How much of that was in the studio? It was a very long process altogether. Um, it was a very long rehearsal process <laughs> and then a very long recording process to the extent that we basically recorded it three times. We recorded the whole thing three times. So we, we eventually demoed all the songs um, before and after signing to A&M um, and we demoed this, all the songs to quite a high quality and then we went into the studio with a an American producer called Davis Kirschenbaum, who used to work at A&M as a kind of consultant in LA. Um, and that proved to be an error, uh, a very expensive <laughs> error. Uh, so the, the band were happening. Uh, we'd hired our, our friend Nick Clark to play bass, so I was just doodling about an acoustic guitar and singing. So we could all play, um, but the producer and the engineer just... <laughs> I don't know. It was it was a very odd experience, um, and so we ended up in LA with a sort of second, well, the first masters finished, and Chris Briggs, the guy that signed the scene, came over to LA and listened to the mixes and just said, "What do you want to do?" And we just sort of broke down and went, "We want to start again," <laughs> which which he let us do. So then we we then went and recorded it effectively a third time, um, and by that point. Um, we knew the songs. Well, we, we knew the songs. <laughs> we, we had, I mean, we already had sort of two or three different versions of everything. Um, and then we, we got Hugh Jones in, who produced the first album. Yeah. 
and he didn't want because drummers were under such pressure in those days to basically sound like drum machines so he didn't want uh, Paul Chagger our drummer to get red light syndrome or he, he just don't want to mess about editing drums and things uh, I mean Paul was a very good drummer but the, the, the it was you know sounding like a drum machine was a kind of religion in those days you, I mean you just wouldn't get played in the radio if your drummer sounded like a real drummer almost, to a certain extent that's a bit of an exaggeration Um so then Hugh Jones had us had our drummer play all the top kits, so play the hats and the cymbals and the toms and loads of percussion to pro- what was a kind of early version of programmed kick drum and, and snare drum. And we also hired a bass player for quite a lot of that stuff because everybody was obsessed with tightness and sounding like, you know, just sounding like a, a, some room full of ses- early session musicians that cost five grand a day it was it was a very odd time so we 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 did that at the same time as trying to hold on to some kind of band rock thing it seems that one of the biggest differences between the debut album and all delamitri albums since has been the writing process here's justin talking about the change um, we would all write the music so i i just put the whole idea of writing myself in the back burner and then ian harvey from delamitri uh after we'd made the first album which took us years to write because the writing process was so arduous. The writing process for early Delamitri involved four people in a room staring each other eyeball to eyeball, right, you play something. No, you play something. (laughs) And then what I would do is I would just gather magpie fashion, little bits, just little cycles of riffs, and then stitch them to other cycles of riffs that we'd put together a few weeks before. It took months to write a song, and I would eventually sort of say to everybody, you play that bit there, play that bit there. And then I would tape a couple of minutes of it and then go home and throw lyrics over the top and then we'd come back and edit. It was, you know, it was hellish. So we ended up with all these songs that didn't really have chord sequences. They just, they were quite odd and probably all the better for it. But it, it got to a point where that just wasn't sustainable because it took years to write an album. It took us four years to write an album or three years or something. And that's rehearsing every day. We used to rehearse five days a week just writing. So... Then I started kind of writing things on my own and Ian said, look, just do that because it's going to save us a lot of time. So he's like, I'll write stuff on the guitar and you can adapt that, but you should keep writing stuff. So through his encouragement, I ended up being the principal songwriter of the band, which I didn't ever have a desire to be, but because I could do it, it just saved everybody a lot of time. And uh, that's where all that came from. So I didn't really start doing that until I was about 19, something like that. So quite late on. I mean, I'd obviously we'd written loads of songs before that, but I, I didn't think of myself as a as a songwriter until, yeah, about 19, I guess. Maybe later. Yeah, 1920. So the band's second album, Waking Hours, was released in 1989. Let's start with the third single, which was released on July 1989 and also re-released in March 1990. And it's Dalamitri's first big UK hit, Nothing Ever Happens, which made it to number 11 in the UK. And the album, Waking Hours, went to number six in the UK. Here's Justin Curry talking about the song and a possible reason for it charting. Same cohort. You know, it's the same people that we were seeing in nightclubs and bars that we were either working in or frequenting. And that same group of people that came out of the 80s um, or were coming out of the 80s and the, the kind of the ruination of Thatcherism in Scotland particularly and we all went a bit kind of you know style you know it's like the, the Glasgow Garden Festival and this is before you know the city of culture but it, it seemed to me a lot of people's reaction to the dismantling of the industrial working class was let's 
be urban sophisticated, you know. And it, it was hard. It's hard not to cast a fairly uh, sceptical eye over that, and also know that you're one of those people yourself. You're one of those twerps, you know. That I think going to nightclubs is is amazing, man. This is weird. If this was the sixties, we'd all be going mental, and there'd be a proper sort of protest movement, and everybody'd be would be writing songs about this, but nobody was, you know. So I ended up writing songs about the fact that nobody was writing, nobody was writing songs. <laughs> <laughs> Which is probably not the best thing to do. Not the most socially responsible thing to do, but anyway. There was just something so obscene about people living a few miles away, dying of heroin and effectively dying of lack of employment, while those of us with record deals and jobs in bars and restaurants were swanning around and living it up. You find yourself writing these songs about three o'clock in the morning, and there was something quite good about just gazing out of the bay window and looking right down Great Western Road. I guess that's where some of the imagery came from. We could not make it fit into a two electric guitar, bass and drums format. So we just went full folk. Yeah, when we sequenced the album, it was kind of hard to find a place to put. Nothing ever happens because it was so different from everything else. We put quite a big, quite a lot of silence at the end of the the second last track because we thought people might need a <laughs> might need a breather before they hear this weird, weird folk protest song. Because we designed the cover ourselves and the Americans didn't like it. So, yeah. So, John, our manager, thought, ah, this would be quite a good opportunity to delete the UK album and re release it after the next single. Which meant all the, the record buyers had to buy the single if they wanted nothing else to get by the album. So that's why it charted. It got to number 11, which is a massive thing for us. It's one of those tracks that they started to have, you know, it kind of had a momentum. It picked up overnight when Nothing Ever Happens got into the charts. Uh, and we did Top of the Pops. Overnight, the gigs went from a few hundred. We were picking up, we were selling maybe 250, 300, 350 tickets in universities. So not, not necessarily to fans, just to curious people. Oh, there's a band on tonight in the student union. Um, and then all of a sudden we were playing to over a thousand people, literally overnight, because we'd been on national TV for a couple of weeks. We'd done all the daytime shows. We did some late night shows. Uh, so all of a sudden we were kind of known um, and because the top 40 was such a big deal in those days you got huge exposure over the four available TV channels we were a Radio 1 band at the time and um, uh, so we got loads of airplay and we got quite a lot of airplay on, on commercial stations as well so it was a radical shift um, and and it was a joy it, was, you know, it, it wasn't a shock it was just wow how lucky are we you know we've, we've been striving away for the best part of a decade, uh, not not really getting anywhere other than winning very small pockets of fans in specific towns, and all of a sudden we're you know we're in the newspapers and we're on the telly and there are kids coming to see us. You know, we used to do in stores and there'd be like ten year old kids singing the songs. Like this is this is mad, but it's really great. Most of his clocks put up signs saying position closed And secretaries turn off typewriters and put on their coats And janitors padlock the gates for security guards to patrol And bachelors phone up their friends for a drink while the married ones turn on a chat show We'll all be lonely tonight and lonely tomorrow 
Gentlemen, time please, you know we can't serve anymore Now the traffic lights change to stop when there's nothing to go And by five o'clock everything's dead And every third car is a cab And ignorant people sleep in their beds Like the dope white mice in the college lab at all The needle returns to the start of the song and we all sing along like before And we'll all be lonely tonight and lonely tomorrow Telephone exchanges click while there's nobody there The Martians could land in the car park and no one would care Close circuit cameras and department stores Shoot the same movie every day And the stars of these films neither die nor get killed Just survive constant action replay And nothing ever happens Nothing happens at all The needle returns to the start of the song And we all sing along like before at the height of spandex rock waking hours for me was definitely a cleansing of the palette record i always really liked the juxtaposition of the pop rock music but also loved justin's darker lyrics and there's also definitely a sense of ironic cynical humor in there too which always connected with me and i'm very happy to report that my research found out that the character Angry from Manchester, real name Karen, is still very much alive and well and everywhere on the internet. Terminals report some gains in the values of copper and tin While American businessmen snap up Van Goghs for the price of a hospital wing Dalimitri and also Justin Curry's solo work has always been, for me, 80% lyrics and 20% music and melodies. They are one of the only artists that I solely listen through squinted ear holes, 100% of what the singer is singing, or in some glorious cases with Justin Curry, ranting. Not to say I don't dig the music and musicianship as well as the sounds, etc., but my main focus with these guys is always the lyrics. And as mentioned, I've always liked the happy music versus darker lyrics. Here's Justin Curry talking about that. Music I described in the press quite a lot as bittersweet, where the music was quite bright and um, major key on the whole, and the lyrics always had some problem or drama going on in them. But I don't think we did that deliberately. I just think that's the natural way that I write. And that's something we learned from country music is that most country music love songs are about, you know, loss or infidelity or relationships not working out. Um, there are very few happy country and western songs. There's, I mean, there's lots of happy dance songs, you know, uh, and disco songs, but not really, not country songs because they've got to tell a story. And it's there's not much story in "I Love You, You Make Me Feel Free, Yeehaw." Uh, whereas there's loads of interesting stories in um, 
you know, I'm addicted to morphine and my wife's, she, my, my wife's locked the fridge with a padlock and um, her, brother want, her brother wants to kill me because he knows I've been shagging the waitress down the street. That stuff's really interesting to write. So I think, I think, that, I think that's where that came from. Waking Hours also had a song we heard in episode three's Countings, Kiss This Thing Goodbye. It was the album's first single and went to number 35 in the USA and number 11 in the UK. Kiss This Thing Goodbye was the first elementary song I ever heard and I loved the lyrics and I really love the unusual guitar tone, which still to this day feathers my ear pussy. And here's the lads talking about the song, Dave Letterman. Slap to beers. And squeezing every folk instrument into the song. It's all going on in that song. Isn't it just? <laughs> it's like banjos, dobros and mandolin and a bit of acoustic guitar and piano and lead electric guitar. I don't know how it works, but somehow it hangs together. See, when I heard that on the radio when it first came out, I thought, well, that's a massive hit record. Well, yeah, it's weird because I got all over radio here and in the US and it just wasn't a hit. So t- tell us about that. So so, so, what was that? That must have been quite a, an impact on, on you guys because it's, it's on a plate, isn't it? And then it doesn't, doesn't quite happen. Well, it was the first thing where you turned on the radio at night, like commercial radio stations, and we were on the radio. That, so that was quite exciting. And Radio 1 played it a bit. I think commercial radio picked up on, on it first. Uh, and then I spoke. I don't know. I, can't, I don't remember thinking, "Oh my God, this is going to be a big hit." I think we were just so over the moon for it to be on the radio. And it was. It wasn't designed to be on the radio. But we knew we could hear it on the radio when we'd finished it because it's, you know, just because of the way it sounds. Um, but yeah, it didn't really translate at all. So it never quite edged into the top forty for some reason. You know, you, you say that you started writing a, a kind of an anti-factual lyric, and then okay, let, let's do something else. Yeah. Were, were you aware that you you had a, a single on your hands I, and you wrote it with that? I think I changed the lyric because the lyric wasn't good enough for the music. Um, so I think, I'm, and I very rarely do that. Usually, the lyrics, the lyric, and tough cheese. You know, <sighs> tough cheese. Gotta sound like children's TV presenter. Um, <laughs> So yeah, I must I must have been aware that, that this was too good a song to waste a, a crappy eighties, you know, rubbish protest lyric. So one one of the things we started to talk about was the array of uh, really interesting instrumentation on "Kiss This Thing Goodbye," and of course, right at the start, you get that that blast the harmonica. Why uh, did Why did we? Cause, because we, we we got a guy called Julian Dawson in to play it, who was. Yeah. But why did we decide harmonica as well? <laughs> I can't remember why we decided that. Or was it whose idea was that? Who was fucking? So it was you. It was really just you, me, and Mark, Mark Freegard that were working on that track. Somebody must have um, said. I think we did. You try to play harmonica on it, and then no, you because to I, get I, I, no, to I didn't. It? I didn't own a harmonica in those days. Uh, okay. I certainly wasn't. Um, somebody well, must have, I don't know. I mean, we were in the studio for months, years. Yeah. <laughs> you played that song on Letterman as well, so, so who might? Well, no, but you Letterman, you play with a house band, so yeah. it was just you and me yeah. and Artie Fufkin, or whoever, yeah. no, no, he's not called Artie Fufkin, he plays Artie Fufkin. And Paul Schaefer, is it? Paul, Paul Schaefer. Paul Schaefer, Schaefer, sorry, yes, who plays Artie Fufkin. Who's lovely. He's yeah, great, no, he's great to work with. And the, 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 it because like, it's, it's, very strange. it's that, I don't know what time signature it is, that kind of swing rhythm, did, 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 like, like oh. Waterfront Miss Simple Minds or something. And um, the bass player at the time was this kind of New York session musician with a big yellow bass, as I remember. In fact, he might. <laughs> a yellow bass? Horrible they yellow bass. <laughs> Somebody does. <laughs> so, anyway, they, so what they do is they run, through, they run through their rough arrangement, which is usually really fairly usable you know it's like yeah we can sing and play along to that 
but the bass player decided to slap the bass and he kept saying to Paul, you know, says, I'm, I'm slapping this, is that okay? And Paul Schaefer was like, yeah, that's fine. I was thinking, no, not slap bass, not slap bass. <laughs> and then they take you into the gallery and they play you the run through to make sure that, the, that we, me and Ian were all, all right with a thing and I said I, I'm just because I didn't feel like we had the status to go going to know slap the bass you know uh, and I, maybe it's a shame that they didn't keep slapping the bass because it would have been really funny um, but then eventually the bass player at Listen Bank went no that slap's not right oh, no, I'm just going to play just play it regularly and I was oh thank god <laughs> Next guests are making their uh, network debut uh, right here on tonight on the big program. What is what's that annoying hum? Are we all set? Yeah. Is that going to be all right? We can't do anything about that hum. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, we'll try and work it into the tune if you It'll can. Be, yeah, it's in the, luckily it's in the right key. <laughs> okay. Anyway, they're making their network television debut here on our show. This is their uh, brand new album, uh, oddly enough, called The Annoying Hum. <laughs> It's called Waking Hours. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, all the way from Glasgow, Scotland, and points south, please welcome Delamitri. And remember to check out the electric guitar tone and Ian's great guitar part in the intro. One, two, three. second single of Waking Hours was Stone Cold Sober, which kind of echoes some of the lyric ideas Justin Curry talked about in Nothing Ever Happens, especially with the line that ends, while the bomb loses patience, we line up and just lean against the bar. Stone Cold Sober being a, a, an example of it, right, and obviously uh, ended up as a, a, another single, and I think it was the second single. And yes, maybe a fourth single, and maybe the sixth single. Aye, I don't aye, know. Aye, aye. <laughs> but but, but, but it's a, it's the, that's a really muscular yeah. sounding sound, yeah. sound thing. Yeah. And it, but it's also got that. It's, maybe that's where you, you you link that side of Delamitri with those kind of more 
little bits of portraiture that you do in other songs. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it's Stone Cold, so I mean, this tells you how almost how vital it is to have some kind of financial support when you're when you're learning. So we, we did re- we rehearsed a lot. We rehearsed a lot with a limited amount of songs. We didn't write screech and screech of songs. Um, and that that song started out as a cunt, sort of three chord country song, and then it morphed into this kind of weird U two. I mean, I don't know what it is. It's a quite quite an odd thing altogether. Stone Cold Sober, but it, it went through a few iterations. Um, but also, the, I mean, the brand thing those days is Ian would write songs. I, I would then write lyrics for, but I, I would write songs very kind of in that country folky sort of style but as soon as they, they went through the Mixley and Ian Harvey process in rehearsal they just became something else totally different which is really exciting if you've just written this thing in your bedroom and you think oh, that's a good song but then it becomes a different beast altogether and again that's because not only because we had the best two guitar players in the UK probably at the time but also we were being supported you know we were rehearsing five six days a week we kind of we hired tubular bells at one point. This tubular, which actually ended up in the end of Stone Cold Sober. The tubular bells came from Maurice Plackett. On somebody had come unearthed. This is pre-internet as well. Had come up with some dubious fact that there hadn't been a single release with tubular bells on and there hadn't been a hit. That was since, my idea. Since tubular bells. That was my idea. So we hired blimmin' <laughs> tubular bells. So the harmonica was quite a straightforward thing to come up with. <laughs> Everybody in the fun house Says they want out But we're taking out time Cause we're in love with time single off Waking Hours was Move Away Jimmy Blue. And here's Justin again. Well, Move Away Jimmy Blue, quite, quite similarly to Kiss Thing Goodbye, came from a kind of Americana-type bottleneck thing that Ian had come up with um, and then became a... a, a prior, prior to raising a lot of these songs, we'd got quite into sort of new country, um, things like Little Love and Steve Earle, um, and old country as well. So we'd, we'd, all of a sudden, we thought, well, it's okay to have a story in a song. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if it's a bit cheesy. So 
yeah, movie with Jimmy Blue was one of those those things where I thought because because Ian's riff sounded it sounded pretty American, he just a bottleneck naturally sounded American to me. I thought, oh, a kind of country type lyric with a with a wee story about a kind of disaffected youth or uh, a kind of pariah type person in a in a wee village somewhere. Movie Jimmy Blue was just based on a family that I knew when I was uh, living in a wee village in Leicester, where it was so small that. There was only one bad family that were presumed to be bad and the police were always going round to their door. Um, so anything bad that happened in the village, they get the blame. It was like kind of medieval, you know, <laughs> sort of pariah, basically. And um, so it was, it was really just based on that, as far as I remember, with a few things thrown in, perhaps. A struck match faded like a nervous laugh Beyond the halo of a naked bulb And your low voice mingles with your other halves School friends and second-hand clothes Eventually your world will shrink within four walls Of neglected depths and stolen stereos So move away Jimmy Blows Before your small, small town turns around and swallows you A drunk mother was the cue Legendary things that you do Behind a carnival tent With mud on your face Behind the old blue factory So move away, Jimmy Blue Before your small, small town Turns around and swallows you so Delamitri's next record is 1992's Change Everything. It has four songs on it that would probably feature in my top 200 songs of all time if I ever did that pointless exercise. Here's Justin again talking about the album. I mean, I, I always preferred the songs that we wrote together. They just took me as a singer and a lyricist to different places and I just thought they were much more interesting. But we ended up, partly because the second Delamitri album on A&M, so the third album technically, uh, Change Everything, we wrote it quite quickly, so that's really dominated by songs that I've written on my own, and that kind of moved the audience into a kind of area of expecting kind of singer-songwriter stuff, which is not what we were about. We were about being a band first, you know, and hopefully with some sort of decent lyrics over the top. Um, so that put a wee bit of commercial pressure on us to have, you know, a kind of acoustic-y singer-songwriter side, which I always found slightly frustrating. Because that's not, that wasn't what we wanted to be. You know, we started as a kind of arty indie band and we moved into this kind of mainstream kind of American rock area. And it was quite odd suddenly having this singer songwriter side to what we did. And in interviews at the time, we would always deny that we were into songwriting. We would say, no, we're not about songwriting, we're about being a band and all that sort of stuff, which is a blatant lie, really. But we just always thought all those 
cunts and bands were just really pretentious going on about, oh yes, the art of the song and all that. Bugger off, you know. Uh, I mean, I don't mind talking about it now because I'm, I'm an old man and I, you know, I do consider myself a songwriter, but back in those days, that was not how we wanted to be perceived. We wanted to be perceived as rock guys who put on a show that people could enjoy, you know. Let's start with track four, which wasn't a single, but it's one of my favourites, called Surface of the Moon. Justin said this of the song. In a quote... In this song, I imagine Patrick Moore looking into a mirror, singing a eulogy to his favourite hat, Mildred, which he had left on a number 12 bus near the BBC. Mildred's replacement is a poor substitute, a British home store's carry all bag, wrinkled and crumpled with rain. I had no idea who Patrick Moore was, but I googled him and he was an old school monocle wearing TV host. A song that to me is about returning to an old location and an old love to find us all changed. And before I mention it, I do want to throw in that reading out lyrics is a bit pointless without the context and the melody. I'm just going to mention a few lines here and there of bits that have always stabbed me. And the line is, And the riverside where we first kissed has now been reduced to a phony old world market where only shoppers get seduced. Surface of the moon.
The next one is off Change Everything 2 and randomly one of novelist Stephen King's favourite songs. And the song went to number 13 in the UK and number 30 in the US. Here's Justin again talking about the song and the guitar riff, which always made me think of this. a song that I thought was particularly exciting I knew it had a chorus, I'm not very good at writing choruses so I knew that was a plus um, and it was written at a time when we were really obsessed with the Faces, all the early Faces records and everything we did we tried to get to sound like the Faces so when we demoed that it was kind of like a Faces rip off and then what happened was Gil Norton, the producer came in and I think he felt under pressure to to have something on the record that sounded like a radio hit. So he completely rearranged it. And about two or three years later, I was listening to the radio and I realised that he completely ripped the arrangement off of... Is it John Waite's Missing You? Is that what it is? Um, I think it's John Waite, which was a big FM radio hit in the 80s. And he, Gil Norton had just completely wholesale lifted that guitar and bass and drums arrangement. And it worked because it was a hit, but it, was, um, it didn't sound anything like the way the song was written, you know. It's a funny song, that. It's a very sort of personal song. It's quite odd that it became a pop hit. Kind of weird. <laughs> I always found it interesting how the main guitar riff works in that, because when it starts, it's like a kind of a happy rock and roll kind of quo thing almost, and then yeah. when the rest of the music kicks in, you realise it's much more kind of wistful and, and more emotional. Yeah, and that speaks to what I was saying, because... Uh, the guitar riff was just kind of imposed on us by the producer, which, look, I'm, I don't in any way resent that because that's what you know, allowed that record to get on the radio and be a really big hit. That's what saved our bacon, really, was having radio hits. I mean, that was really all we had because we didn't sell a huge amount of records. But, yeah, that didn't come from us. That was definitely Mr. Producer earned his money. And a quick thanks to Laura McTaggart for chastising me when I missed this one in Episode seven's Cowbells. I'm going to play an acoustic version of the song, I've always loved the lower harmonies in the second verse, in the When the Bomb Drops Baby bit. Delamitri played the rebooted Woodstock Festival in 1994 and also performed Always the Last to Know on David Letterman. Our next guests are a band from Glasgow. I pronounced that right? Yeah. Absolutely. It is band, huh? <laughs> Uh, their most recent album is entitled Change Everything, and I'm telling you folks, if you have the money and you'd like to buy one, buy this one. Welcome back to the program, Delamitri. So you're in love with someone else, someone who burns within your soul, and it looks like I the last to know I hear you've never felt so alive So much desire beyond control As usual I am the last to know The last to know How you're feeling The last to know If you're happy now Or if he's treating you Like I treated you Or if he's cruel 
Episode 18's 4x4, which was four-syllable artists singing four-syllable songs, is the excellent Be My Downfall. That Australians had taken to the band. In fact, Delamitri's been around for ten years, and they've just released their third album called Change Everything. Three of the members of the group are with us this morning, including lead singer and spokesman. Justin, good morning to you. I'll be a spokesman this morning. How symbolic is the title of this new album? I mean, you, ha- you had a tough... Ten years, you guys. Well, it doesn't really re- refer to us. It was more. Uh, it was partly because it was general election year in Britain, and we thought that uh, we thought our government was going to change. We thought let's have, a, let's have an album that reflects that. So we called it Change Everything. Unfortunately, it didn't work. <laughs> but when <laughs> you when, when you sat down to work on this one, yeah, was it with a sense of this had better work this time, mm. or we're in big trouble? Well, I, I think if you think that way when you're making a record, then you'd get a bit confused. I mean, all, all you really think about when you're making an album is just uh, achieving as much as possible with the songs that you have. You don't really... If you start thinking about what your audience expects or what's going to happen when you release it, then really, it, it just, it's distracting. You but just think been, about the music. It has been a tough ten years. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't really... I mean, we've got lots of friends in bands who've had it, had it a lot harder than we have. We've actually been quite lucky. I mean, the fact that we're still going, you know, we can make records and uh, we can more or less do what we want to do is, is fairly fortunate to do. Your spread of appeal is is quite broad. Frighteningly broad. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I mean, do you mother, say, mothers and daughters. Well, I mean, <laughs> from mid-teens right through to mid-40s and beyond. Is, yeah. is that something that just evolved or was it intentional? Well, I think that wasn't intentional. I mean, it's, I mean it, it actually depends where you go. I mean, sometimes you go to be a lot of young kids and uh, sometimes, sometimes it's, I mean, it's, it is amazingly mixed, you know. It's also hard to tag your music. Yeah, um, we've been trying for years to tag it and with, without success. That's why we gave ourselves such a stupid name actually, so that nobody could tag us. Well, uh, you'll notice I haven't asked you what, what, what that means. <laughs> well done, you get top brownie points for not asking us what the name means. Alright, well listen, let's take a listen to a track from sure. the album. Great song, a little country yeah, mood to of, it. It's kind of a, one of these country stories of infidelity yeah. and, uh, and love on a, on a hot steamy night. It's called Be My Downfall. Yep. And it goes like this. I'd better go before I'm 
mistaken, let my feelings show. And twenty miles away, she waits alone for me. But when I try to picture her, you're the one I see. And then another situation I could put up a fight, but you will be my downfall tonight. So the night is coming down. But I mean, as I was saying before, with this sort of darker sort of lyrical content, it must be quite funny to sort of see people out there sort of singing along this kisses thing goodbye. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's like <laughs> the happiest breakup ever. You know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the one the one that always did our heads in was uh, was "Be My Downfall," which is just about somebody. Say, yeah. You know, say, and, yeah. and, and all, the couples always put their arms around each other and sing it, sing it along. And I mean, they know it's about infidelity, you know. But <laughs> just sometimes you're standing on stage and you think, did they did they get together because they were being unfaithful to to other to other people? Um, but, I mean, that's this great. Is that <laughs> this is our song. This is our song. It's very odd. My last choice off the Change Everything album is a song I used in episode 22's Body Parts and is to me one of the greatest cynical, circular and for a lot of people, realistic love songs ever. The first rule of love.
Delamitri's next album, Twisted, was released in 1995 and went to number three in the UK and number 44 out here in Australia and featured one of my favourite Delamitri songs. Here's Justin talking about the song semi-autobiographical lyrics. I saw a song that was saved by Ian Harvey because I played it again. Difficult thing to arrange. We never really got a satisfactory arrangement for it because it's so linear and slow. Um, there's not a lot a band can do on it. So uh, I played it to the band in rehearsal and everybody went, mmm, don't get it, which is fine. And that's the whole thing about being in a band. That's your filter process. So off it goes. That goes, you know, into the file marked no. But then about six months later, Ian came back and I went, remember that song, Driving the Brakes On? I went, uh-huh. He said, I think we should do that, which was quite remarkable that he'd even remembered it because, we, you know, we'd been routining loads of things in those days. We were writing a lot of, lot of songs in those days. I mean, I think on one album we had 70 songs demoed. So it was amazing that he'd remembered that, actually. Um, and so he saved it, you know, and I'm, I'm glad he did because uh, even though, again, it doesn't have a tune, but I've always really loved that song. I mean, what I tend to do is I start writing and I go, right, I know what this is about. This is about an autobiographical situation, for want of a better phrase. And then just to make it interesting, I'll add sort of narrative drama to it for, again, that sounds extremely pretentious, but <laughs> just put things in that, you know, that didn't happen to me, you know. Yeah, that didn't happen. You know, my legs didn't get blown off or something. You know, you just... So they'll start in, in, in you know, writing about real life and then... It becomes a story about other people, basically. So it's a bit of both. I mean, occasionally I've written things that are directly confessional. And I don't think that's invalid. I don't think there's anything wrong with being confessional. As long as there's some poetry in there, I think that's okay. But I think most of the time I'll bend it into a, a more interesting shape than it would be if I was just singing about what my boring life is. You know? I love this live acoustic version. I really dig the drummer's snare idea where he plays cross-stick rim shots until the second chorus, then hits the snare on every second, second beat, then drops the snare on the three of the epic bridge with great harmonies. Justin's vocal is going for it and it even cracks out a few times, but I love it. It's so real and heartbreaking. I also love the line, it's hard to say you love someone and it's hard to say you don't. A song voted by me in 2012 is having the greatest bridge sung by a Scottish person with sideburns ever. And what's the song called? All right, this is called Driving With The Brakes On. And how does it go? And it goes like this. Driving through the long night Trying to figure who's right and who's wrong now the kid has gone And I sit belt it up tight And she sucks on a match light Glowing bronze Steering on And I might be more a man If I stopped this in its tracks And said come on Let's go home But she's got the wheel And I've got nothing Except what I have on When you're driving with the brakes on When you're swimming with your boots on It's hard to say you love someone 
And it's hard to say it don't I'm trying to keep the mood right I'm trying to steer the conversation from The thing we've done And she shuts up the ice trip it's a long way back now But she just yawns And we might get lost someplace So desolate that no one will we're from Would ever come But she's got Twisted also had Dalamitri's biggest charting song in the US on it, and that song is Roll To Me, which went to number 10 in the US. Here's Justin Curry talking about the song, which is another example of bright music and darker lyrics. Oh, God. Uh, yeah, the melody, the melody and the chords all kind of came together. I was desperately trying to write something throwaway and very Beatlesque, and weirdly it ended up sounding very like early Dalamitri, like lots of lyrics all rammed into a very small space um and also when i wrote it i didn't realize how fast it was it's the fastest thing that we ever that we ever recorded it's like some ridiculous bpm <laughs> it was just partly why it's so short even though it's got 
you know, it's got two middle eights and it's got all the bits in it, but it's like under three minutes. I mean, significantly under three minutes because it's so fucking fast. But that was just, we, we were writing this kind of rock record, which ended up being called Twisted, during the kind of sort of the grunge period. And we were listening to a lot of really interesting guitar rock records, things like Swerve Driver. I really like the last Nirvana record in utero. And um, yeah, we were listening to a lot of quite sludgy guitar rock. And I, I just felt that we needed something um, a bit throwaway. And then when we recorded it and I dumped all that sort of really melodic 12-string guitar on it, uh, it sounded really anomalous. And I said to Ian, look, we can't, this should not be in the record. And he said, look, we're going to need it because otherwise the record's going to be really a bit drab, you know. <laughs> um, so we put it on the record and it bought us both a house. So there you go. <laughs> One of the greatest ever Come Over To Me songs since Joan Armour Trading's Drop The Pilot. Check out episode 10's All About The Ladies for that one. Roll to me. Look around your world, pretty baby. Is it everything you hoped it'd be? The wrong guy, the wrong situation. The right time to roll to me. Roll to me. To your heart, pretty baby, is it aching with some nameless need? Is there something wrong and you can't put your finger on it? Right then, roll to me. And I don't think I have ever seen you so, so in despair. So if you want to talk the night through, guess who? Just a quick side rabbit hole, Justin's dad, John Carey, who sadly passed away in May 2020, aged 85, was the chorus master for the Scottish National Orchestra Chorus from 1965 to 1984, and he was also the musical director for the Los Angeles Master Chorale from 1986 to 1991. Speaking of choirs... There's a man there you know He's the host of the show And you'll find that he fucking hates choirs Well, look into your heart, pretty baby Is it aching with something less need? Something wrong and you can't put your finger on Right then Let's move on. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, that will make sense if you listen to some back episodes. So 1997 saw the band release their fifth album, Some Other Suckers Parade, which was a slight change of approach as most of the songs were recorded live with, as Ian said in an interview with Guitarist Magazine in October 97, absolutely as few overdubs as possible. Probably 80% of the songs on this record don't have overdubs. So the first single off the album was Not Where It's At, which went to number 21 in the UK.
Then the band planned to release the song Medicine as a single on the 8th of September 1997, but reportedly withdrew the single's release due to some lyrics that may have seemed inappropriate in light of Princess Diana's death the week before. The next single was the title track, Some Other Suckers Parade, that went to number 46 in the UK. And the film clip was the first sighting of Justin Curry without his trademark sideburns. And lastly, in November 1997, there was an Australian-only release of Sleep Instead of Teardrops. Delamitri had a semi-controversial, on the very soft side of controversial song, that topped the charts in Scotland in 1998. Here's Justin talking about the song, the play on words, and football realism. We've, we've never... We've never really got close since, you know. I, I, I love that. And so I kind of, I, I sort of took Don't Come Home Too Soon from that and had a bit more fun with it because Scotland, by that point, the Scotland team had just been regarded as complete no-hopers. No and I thought, well, we, we need to talk about this, you know. Rather than going, oh, we're going to win the World Cup, oh, let's go and beat <laughs> England and all that nonsense. Um, you've, you've just got to, you know... You've got to be frank about it. It's like nobody fancies us, so let's just kind of laugh about it and see 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 if we get lucky. <laughs> <laughs> There's obviously been some dreadful ones out there, some very banging the drum, we're going to win the World Cup kind of thing. Uh, yeah. Don't Come Home Too Soon was the complete antithesis of that, but... I really liked it, but obviously not a lot of... Well, some people were uh, very uh, anti the fact that you were, you know, not going in there and saying, we're going to win the World Cup. Yeah, when there's two... When this kind of Scottish national team support, there's kind of two strands. There's people like me and most of my mates who who know that Scotland are kind of minnows in an enormous ocean of talent and uh, will probably never qualify for a, a major competition again. Uh, and then there's the, the, there's a kind of town army element who are very jingoistic and think that, you know, we're absolutely brilliant and you can't see anything negative about Scotland ever. Um, so they're kind of diametrically opposed to those two things. But, I mean, the, the, the kind of inspiration for, for that song came from listening to um, Three Lines on a Shirt, which I thought was a brilliant football song. And as soon as I heard that, I thought, well, first thing I thought was, it was that's going, going to go to number one, which it did. And the second thing I thought was that's the first time I've heard anybody from the the, the kind of English uh, team side expressing kind of sentiments of regret and mournfulness. And I thought it, I just thought it fitted really well. And um, and you're right. I think at the, at the end of the day, I thought I think that song actually helped helped the team in uh, Euro '96. So that was where the idea came from. I thought, well, look, if, you know, if they can get away with it, I don't see why. Why I can't get, get away with it. But that being said, I, did, I didn't write it to be a football song. I wrote it about the Scotland team, but I, I also wrote it for the American audi- audience that we were playing to a lot then, because I knew the American audience would, would interpret that song as being about a European family sending a family member over to America to make their fortune. So it had that double meaning, but it was only when the powers that be discovered that it was originally written about the Scotland national football team that... They got the applause on it and, and made it and made a big sort of song dance out of it, which, which was probably a bit of a mistake in retrospect. Uh, I guess you could never have written uh, uh, "Where on the March with Ali's Army" kind of song, could you? Yeah, I, mean, I do like. Uh, I, I actually like that that particular song, and I like "I Have a Dream." I think that's, oh, that's a great that's one. Yeah, yeah. With, yeah, that's tinged with uh, with sadness. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, it was just. I mean, I really like that song, but for me, it was a, a mistake getting. Pitching anything that, that Delamici did to 
this kind of slightly nationalist um, project. Uh, and I mean, there were, there were just all sorts of weird people that kind of got involved. And then, you you know, your music gets judged not on its merits, but it gets judged on, on its ability to, um, you know, light flames of enthusiasm amongst, you know, football supporters, which is just not, not what I was trying to do at all. I mean, what I was trying to do was write a love song to... Uh, to a football team. I mean, I wrote it literally the night after I, I saw us uh, qualify for uh, the World the World Cup um, beating San Marino. It took us about 60 minutes to score a goal against San Marino. It was, it was pretty, pretty nerve-wracking. And sadly, of course, you, you are the last person to write a song for Scotland going through a major competition. So. I know, and I, I was really... I, I was, I, for completely selfish reasons, I was desperately hoping that uh, we'd qualify for the for the France uh, Euros because uh, then I thought well the lyrics will still work because <laughs> you know, the lyrics mentioned France um, but yeah I kind of thought this this time might have been our, our time I mean, we, we will qualify eventually you know, we've got a lot of really great up and coming young, young players apparently there's a whole glut of like 16 to 18 year olds at the moment that are looking really promising so I mean we will eventually qualify but uh, aye wasn't to be this time you're not, not expecting a call from the the SFA next time, then? No, I mean, there never was a call from the SFA. I mean, that's the thing. You know, the song was was, was written... You know, it wasn't really meant to have anything to do with the official side of, of the, the Scotland team. And, in fact, the SFA had bugger all to do with it. The SFA farmed it all out to a, a private enterprise called Team Scotland or something, who were just... they were It was some PR firm down south that were just absolutely useless... Uh, and they completely buggered up all the ticket allocations. So the record company had run all this, um, uh, all these competitions. So we had all these we had 12 competition winners going to the opening game against Brazil and Paris. And uh, the 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 organisation that was supposed to be doing all this was the Team Scotland organisation or whatever they were called. Uh, just, just didn't have any tickets. So the record company had to buy 12 tickets from Touts in Paris <laughs> on the eve of the game, which cost €2,000 a ticket. So they had to send their accountant over with a, a suitcase full of cash from London, chained to this brief, or briefcase, I should say, uh, to go around the, the bars of Paris and they bought to buy these tickets. So they, these, I mean, some of these competition winners were eight years old. <laughs> so they had, and they had all these tickets with French people's names on them, which is absolutely hilarious. So it was, the whole thing was an absolute farce, you know. Um, and again, as I said, it was, it was not to do with the SFA, it was all farmed out to some PR company. Speaking of football, here's a story about Dalamitri flexing their rock star muscles in Scotland to score some free tickets. Did Justin's group once um, once contact a football club yeah. seeking much sought after tickets for a feisty local derby match only to be told by the lady on the phone that she'd checked with the club secretary and he'd never heard of Derek Amitri so he wouldn't be getting a ticket? Uh, actually, that's that's partially true. They, they did... <laughs> Uh, one of our road crew phoned up because we were desperate to see an old firm game and we couldn't get tickets and he phoned up and said Delamitri would like tickets and then the secretary spoke to her boss and he said yes Derek is, Derek is welcome at our club anytime <laughs> so actually we did get tickets <laughs> under the name of Derek Dimitri Derek stupid little blonka don't come home too soon
breath. The world may not be shaking yet, but you might prove them wrong. Even long shots make it. Delamitri's sixth album, Can You Do Me Good, was released in April 2002. Ian Harvey stated that the album was a pretty straightforward equation. If we don't sell 300,000 copies of the new album, we're out. It's that simple. There was just one single released off the album, Just Before You Leave, which made it to number 37 in the UK. Does your appetite for novelty still burn And do you pick a fight Just to feel the heat of his concern Do you still misbehave Then beg for his reprieve And do you love to feel his needy hands Pulling at your sleeve Don't you always fall in love again Just before you leave Don't you always fall in love again Just before you leave so Delamitri kind of called it quits in 2002, though they never officially broke up, and the band did tour the UK in 2014 and 2018. Taking us then to 2002 with uh, Can You Do Me Good and, and the sort of last official Delamitri record, I mean, the, the reason for sort of stopping playing, was it just the, the natural end of the band's life at that moment and, and you know, just going off to do other things? Yeah, it kind of felt like it. We'd, we'd, I mean, Ian and I had been on a sort of major label apart from sort of three years in the mid, mid to late 80s. Mm. 
all our lives. <laughs> we were kind of institutionalised, and then so we got <laughs> dropped. And we thought, well, what do we do now? And we thought, well, we could just do smaller and smaller gigs, and we could make do records on indie labels. And then we thought, well, let's just take a break and mm. see what happens. And there was just no, you know, the last two we did, a couple of places we played were kind of just over half full, and it was just looking a bit, <laughs> it was looking a bit grim. So you know, you can either just keep forging ahead, yeah. or so we just. We thought, let's take a break. Justin then teamed up with Jim and Kevin McDermott and released a great album in 2004 under the band name The Uncle Devil Show. And the album is called A Terrible Beauty. The album is great and hilarious. A heap of musical Beatle references, plenty of tongue-in-cheek, great harmonies, funny lyrics. And Justin was billed as Jason Barr on the record. The name The Uncle Devil Show, I think, was taken from a Twilight Zone episode from 1985. The album's lyric themes are definitely off the normal beaten track, which is really cool. Here's a little bit of the album's single called She Cuts Her Own Fringe. She's in a league of her own. She wears cotton wool under her headphones. She keeps her shoes in the fridge. She says to swear at dogs is a sacrilege. And maybe I'm just a sucker for a girl who puts pictures of soap over the bathroom door. So she knows when to buy some more. Cause she cuts her own fringe and sometimes her sleeve is singed from cooking her dinner dressed in her Saturday things she cuts her own fringe all that happened to me was I was extraordinarily fortunate to be in a great band full of really lovely people with a really lovely crew and a great manager on a great record company for 20 fucking years making bloody money you know I bought a house I bought a fucking house for cash because because I played in a bloody band I mean how lucky is that but that doesn't make it any easier that at the end of that period when it all suddenly stops and it does stop really suddenly as, as any other artist or singer or writer who's been through this process will tell you it all stops and you sit there and you go and get drunk for a couple of years and you go, fuck, I sort of still want to keep doing that and a part of you is ashamed to admit that but you do still want to go and get the little ego wank of, of audience, an audience applauding because they, they like your performance um, and you really miss it, you miss it like heroin and out of that, out of that almost manufactured um, you know, manufactured self-pity. Uh, you can find you can find other stuff to write about, I guess. Justin Curry then released four solo albums: 2007's "What Is Love For," 2010's "The Great War," 2013's "Lower Reaches," and 2017's "This Is My Kingdom." We'll take a little bit of a break from listening to the music and we'll have a listen to Justin Curry go a little bit deeper into his songwriting process. I spend a lot of time waiting for them to appear out of the, the air or wherever songs come from. It's something of a mystery to me. Uh, I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't sit down and force myself to write mm. a bunch of songs because if you do that, well, if I do that, they come out really, they're, they're very self-conscious and you can see the kind of nuts and bolts and the way they're put together. Mm. Whereas I'd rather just sit on the couch and watch the telly and then if something mm. sort of comes to me, mm. 
I'll I'll mull it over for a few weeks. <laughs> I'll go to the pub, yeah. and then and, and eventually it's it's like they, they kind of percolate and and uh, they, they, I don't know they, they sort of bake inside it's you. Like and a then gestation they period. Yeah, there is a gestation period. Yeah. I think. I mean, a lot of people say that, and I, I would definitely subscribe to that that theory. You know. I mean, the great thing about being a so-called solo artist as opposed to being the principal writer in a band is that. I wrote songs for Dilly Mitchell that, that I thought were the best things I'd written that were on B-sides or that were never released because the band didn't like them, quite rightly, because they couldn't play anything on them and they wouldn't have played to a Dilly Mitchell audience because Dilly Mitchell audience would have gone, why is he whinging on about his dead dog, whatever the fuck it is? Because at the end of the day, I think life is, on the whole, pretty bleak. Utterly pointless. I mean, utterly pointless. Anybody who claims there's a point to life is a fucking liar. And I don't think there's any... Re- any I don't think there's any, anything bad about singing about that because I think there's loads of people that think the same thing. And I think if you sing about it and people go, well, that's true, then you can actually get some, some feeling of, of you know, kindred spirit with you know, other members of mankind. I think that's good. It doesn't, make life, it doesn't make life have any less pointless, but it makes life a bit more... It gives you a bit more camaraderie. I don't really think too much about melody. I'm not very good at melody, or at least I'm not very good at... At sewing melody into into a song because I get a wee bit obsessed about the the way the lyrics scan and making the lyrics sound natural. So if I do start imposing a really interesting melody on lyrics, I get really pissed off because it starts to force the lyrics out of kind of conversational phrasing and into something a bit more kind of like musical theatre or something. I don't really like that. And I suppose. The real genius of people like McCartney is they can make very elegant melodies sound very natural, which I've never been able to do. And then, yeah, other things do seem to percolate, I guess. They just, they're just they swimming around in your head for, for months or years, and then suddenly they come up to the surface and you go, oh, where did that come from? That's, that's weird. Certainly they've been turning around in your subconscious. I mean, the big thing for anybody who's trying to do something where you're just making stuff up is if you can turn off as much of your conscious mind as possible, then that's where you're going to get... A decent result. So I think you do have to play lots of stupid games with yourself. So recently I've been writing songs stupidly early in the morning because my, my brain's just not screwed on. So, you know, I'll be writing songs at like it's half six in the morning or something. <laughs> Anything just to kid your brain into, well, certainly to kid your conscious brain into falling asleep. I've always had, uh, I don't know whether it's sort of professional jealousy and resentment when I hear songwriters say oh yeah I do 9 to 5 and I write a song every day and all that that just really pisses me off <laughs> uh, especially people like Nick Cave who, who write really brilliant songs and use that approach and then there's people like Elvis Costello who just think why are you, why are you writing all those fucking songs why, why just just write half the fucking songs that you write <laughs> um, so back in the A&M days when as soon as we had time off everybody was waiting for me to write songs so you're under a bit of pressure just to come up with stuff that the band can get their teeth into and that you can then demo and send to the record company. And I spent about four years at one point writing a lot of stuff for the sake of it and I've, I'll never do that again because I've got reams of, of songs that just aren't very good. They're just, they're just okay, they're a song and they've got the right bits. You know, they've got a torso and arms and legs and a head, but they're all, they're all in the wrong order and, you know, and they walk... They walk the wrong way. <laughs> so that's, that's not for me now. Um, and, and that's why I can't really write to commission and people say, oh, can you, could you write this? And I'm like, no, I can't because it's, it just seems really unnatural and I'm not, I'm not very good at doing that. I'd rather just let them arrive naturally. Do you think there is a certain amount of formula one can adopt in order to write a good song? No, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> to me, an awful lot of the, the actual time is just spent wandering around in a bit of a daze 
letting things percolate. I think, anyway, maybe that is just an excuse for being um, a tit. <laughs> One yeah. of the songs that really took me away was uh, was early in the record. Every song's the same. I thought, wow, he's actually singing to me how to do a song. <laughs> well, uh, hopefully I'm not. I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to. Uh, I wouldn't want to teach anybody uh, actually how to write a song because, like most songwriters, I'm utterly clueless how uh, how it happens. Um, I, I read a, a really interesting Neil Young quote uh, the other day where he, apparently he said that songs are like rabbits. They come out of their holes when you least expect them to. And I to- totally subscribe <laughs> to that idea. Um, but, yeah, I'm not I – th- I think that's kind of a love song. Every song's the same. I'm not entirely entirely sure uh, what, it's, uh, what it's trying to say, but I'm definitely not trying to teach anybody how to write a song, that's for sure. Here's a little bit of that song Justin was talking about called Every Song is the Same. It's off Justin's second last solo album, Lowell Reaches. Let me teach you how to write a song The first line must be brief but strong And the second line should rhyme With something in your baby's heart Something that they know but cannot name And in that way every song's the same Second one should come like an arrow out of a dream. Something only hit by the stringers and in that way every tune's the same. So go ahead, please throw away. As mentioned, every song is the same was off 2013's Lower Reaches, but let's jump back to 2007 for Justin Curry's debut solo album, What Is Love For? I remember when I ordered the vinyl and it turned up, it was pretty cool to read that the album was dedicated to Ian Harvey with the following. And I quote, What Is Love For? is dedicated to Ian Harvey, without whom I would be a basket case. This message to me always kept the door open that Dalimitri might come back someday. Ian Harvey actually recorded some of the album and played guitar on If I Ever Loved You. Mick Slavin, Mark Price and Andy Elston from Dalimitri's past also played on bits of the album. Justin Curry has a bunch of song titles and lyrics where he adds a word to totally change or flip a cliche, or as in the next song, No Surrender, he adds a comma to totally change the meaning. I discussed No Surrender and its little comma in episode 18's 4x4. I wrote a song called No Surrender on my first solo record and the, the record company Ryko came to me and asked me to write, they wanted to make it into an EP, so they wanted me to write another three things. And No Surrender is a reversal of the of the phrase No Surrender, which is short for No Surrender to the IRA, which is what Rangers fans in, in, in Glasgow often sing, you know, because of all the sort of sectarian bullshit that you get in Scottish football. And I... So I put a comma between the no and the surrender just to reverse it. And then I did that with a whole bunch of things. So I had a song called There's Not Enough Black in the Union Jack. And uh, what else did I have? I had You'll Always Walk Alone, I suppose you never walk alone. And We Are Not the People as opposed to We Are the People. And basically it was just a trick that got me from sort of zero to 10 fairly quickly. 
I mean, I could have done that all year, just constantly reversing cliches. So that's where all that stuff came from. So here's a wee bit of Justin Curry's brilliant, rambling, nearly eight-minute, cum shot, battery hen, pedophile, personal goal shopper mentioning, angry distant cousin of nothing ever happens drone of no surrender. Big Macs for the fat, locale wraps for the call center battery hens, Japanese snacks for the choice boat citizens, caviar kickbacks for the citadel denizens. Airport shoe shine service in the suits among the little silver stereos and hand rolled cheroots. First class passengers fight on last after the scum are packed in with their tax free loot. Check out calamity, you cheated out of loyalty points. Ten more years at this joint, you'd be home and dry. Beggars beat round the cash machine, but you just slip between them with the usual lie. Terrible tales of kidnapped kids Keep you focused on the family and filling up the fridge Neighborhood watchers, shop door dodgers Stick their semis on the market and start racking up the bids Should you stand and fight? Should you die for what you think is right? So your useless contribution will be remembered Asking me, I say no, surrender No, surrender Constant growth, a cancerous cure A swarming race of profiteers ensure Cheap cars for the rich, cheap lives for the poor Cheap weeks in the sun, free drinks at the door Pure our propaganda plugs up the TV Keep folk following the money so they'll never be free Keep them swallowing the swill The celebrities, the pedophiles, the immigrants invading from the camp over the hill War talk, the big debate Foot soldiers in the capital Liberating new kinds of hate Come shots of human dogs caught in the spotlights glare He dies, who dares? Fatuous fast tracker Sneering at the shelf stackers Little middle Englanders Can't stand the backpackers Fortress freedom, come on in Take your chances, you might I'll add the whole song and all of the songs used in this episode on the victims tab of the website, arockandrollrabbithole.com. And here's a funny story about the making of the film clip for No Surrender. Craig, the man who has filmed and edited all this, called me one day and said he had a grand idea for a video for my song No Surrender. He would film our enigmatic friend Brendan traipsing around the streets of Glasgow looking distressed, dejected and quite possibly drunk. There was to be a big denouement where his character is revealed as a sort of low-life millionaire, disconsolately rejecting all his material wealth for some permanent existential stroll. Unfortunately, No Surrender is eight minutes long and Brendan so enigmatic that he emigrated to Germany in the summer of 2007, leaving us with about one minute of video and a stupid look in our faces. We show it here as a tribute to the phrase, another partial success. 
kinds of heat Come shots of human dogs caught in the spotlights glare He dies, who dares? Fatuous, fast tracker, sneering at the shelf stackers Little middle Englanders can't stand the backpackers Fortress freedom, come on in Take your chances, you may Justin Curry's second solo album was 2010's The Great War, and here's Ruby talking about the album, the future of Dalamitri, and the first single, A Man With Nothing To Do. And just a bit of translation here, a win is a child. Well, it's a, uh, it's a much, I suppose, popular affair than my first solo record, which I, where I deliberately set out to do something really different from Dalamitri and, mm-hmm. and be very, very serious, actually, and very kind of artistic for want of a better term. And this is more, it's a lot, there's more variety on it. There's ballads, but there's also, there's up things and, and there's pop songs on it, you know. Mm-hmm. I like pop songs. Uh, I just didn't write any for a few years after uh, Delamitri stopped being Delamitri. So, so why the title? Why the Great War? Um, album titles are, they're, I find them very difficult because you don't want something that makes, uh, that says anything too specific that then starts enforcing a meaning on some of the songs so you want something that can just encapsulate like a general idea and a, a lot of the songs had sort of themes of conflict within relationships or, or, or conflicts within oneself and I thought it, it just kind of fitted really well. And what do you hope to achieve with this album? I mean there'll be you know hundreds and thousands of Delamitri fans out there that are just waiting for this but what is success for you now Justin? What are you looking to achieve? Well I mean I don't, I don't have huge expectations. Number one all over the world would do me. Yeah lovely, lovely. We'll make good. sure that happens. That's You're that's on the hour. Oh, this is the place to start. Yeah definitely. this is the place to start definitely. Tell us a bit about the song you're going to perform for us tonight. Well this is the, the first single A Man With Nothing To Do which is one of the last things I wrote on the on the record, and I guess refers to that just sitting about not doing anything, waiting for ideas to to arrive. So I took that idea and just and turned it into into a little a wee love song. We're looking forward to it. But for fans of the band who are watching, what's the story with Delamitri at the moment? Are you well, resting he, as a band or, <laughs> rest, in yes. or what's happening? Yes, I'm resting, darling. <laughs> um, after Leah, I'm just exhausted. <laughs> so, well, me and Ian, the the, the guy with the, the Ian Harvey, the guy with the tash and the long hair, that was my co-conspirator um, in Delamitri. He uh, well, he lives in Oxford, uh, and he's got uh, he's got Wayne and. Um, uh, he produces bands, but we get together every year or so, and we write songs, and we really like we really like the songs that we've written, and they sound kind of like the Elmichi songs. But our manager, our manager hates them. So, <laughs> so our, our manager's like, no, you can't release that as Um But yeah, well, eventually we'll we'll put something out. Eventually, the, the two of us, because we still I love writing with him, and uh, he's a good guy. You know? That's a man with nothing to do. Slaving away, but I do nothing much but breathe. When good men do nothing, it's true what they say. The devil is rolling up his sleeve. Is The 
Great War also had another amazing rambling, ranting, building, eight minute plus internal look at oneself called The Fight to Be Human. There's a verse where he mentions finding a refuge in music and clinging to his records that I imagine a lot of people like myself who have a deep love of music have done. And I feel music has been a saviour for me since I was a wean. I mean, most of the things I write don't really have tunes. They're just, they're just kind of drone on. And, you know, <laughs> The Fight to Be Human. Not a master of what I survey to death and disaster. I am a slave, but I am the author of the words that I say. But why do I bother? It's all trash anyway. I try to be truthful Or I think that I try I may not be useful But at least I'm alive And millions of letters Spill into the hive And all of them worthless Except for this line I hate the world they gave me I hate the world they gave me I stand on a mountain Of pitiful prose My mind is a fountain That pointlessly flows They give you a trophy If you make the kids scream But it's such a joke to me How insipid I've been I hate the world they gave me I hate the world they gave me I dig into my past now Dig into my wrist To recapture the last time I felt the knife twist And I kick at the shackles And heave at the chains But I am the governor Of my empty domains I hate the world they gave me I hate the world they gave me Dad, I'm diseased They prey on my mind And after they leave me I drink till I'm blind And I once had a refuge In music and but now I am deaf to the word on the line I cling to my records I cling to my fate That fool in the mirror has taken my place And the funniest funerals, the saddest of birds 
excuse to indulge in my thirst. I hate the world they gave me. I hate the world they gave me. My- that's about half of it. Check out the full song on the Victims tab of my website or Spotify it or buy the fucking album. I did use an acoustic version of a song off the Great War called At Home Inside of Me in episode 11 and 12's Bird Songs. Here's a bit of the studio track with a great electric guitar part and great tone. At Home Inside of Me. Justin's third solo album was 2013's Lower Reaches. Here's a live recording of the great Little Stars. Justin Curry's latest solo album was released in 2017 and it's called This Is My Kingdom Now. And here's a part of Justin's excellent promo for the album, which is funny shit. Hello, I'm the artist originally known as Justin Curry and this is my kingdom now. First there was, my name is God. I've walked a mountains high I've torn across the sky Take 
featuring title track. This is my kingdom now. Also incorporating number one single, Sydney Harbour Bridge. And I feel that little gift when I get to you. And Sydney Harbour Bridge sinks a little too. And soppy classic Crybabies. But Daddy, I ain't no good When I sing it's like my heart is made of wood I keep to what I know So I don't find myself somewhere deep in that country And don't forget Smash Hit, Failing to See by prog rock classic I Love the Sea So as mentioned Justin Curry has released four great solo records and here's their UK chart numbers What Is Love For? 106 the Great War, number 90. Lower Reaches got to number 46. This is my kingdom now. Made it to number 54. And here's Ian Harvey commenting on their chart success, and then the boys talk about the emotions of Delamitri's 2014 tour. Closely, what have you been up to in recent years? I, as a band, well, just has done... How many solo records have you done, Justin? I've done four, yeah. Four solo records. <laughs> uh, I don't think any of them made the top five. But that, no, they didn't. Know, no, that's true. They didn't. That. didn't. It's nice of you to point that out. He did bits and pieces of work as a record producer, and Justin and I wrote some material that's still languishing in the vault somewhere. But you went back on the road in 2014 for the ah. first time in, in a long time. What was that like? Yeah, it was great fun. It was brilliant fun. It was totally um, fantastic. And we thought, oh, how we've missed this. Yes. Um, really? Yeah. Did you, did you miss it? We, well, we didn't find that out until we actually did the tour, but um, uh, it was it was all very emotional. Um, before, like, I, I, was, I was saying this recently that before the first show, I was away doing some vocal warm-ups in, oh my God, in, this, in the kitchen of this little pub in Cork, and I just burst out crying. And I went oh. into the dressing room and said, guys, I've just burst out crying. And Chris, the guitar player, said, well, too, this, has been, a, yeah. you know, this has been the sort of biggest part of your life. No wonder. You know? But we loved it. It was great. And the audiences seemed to enjoy it as well. That seems to be part of the plan. <laughs> I find myself the tears streaming down my face at Hammersmith Apollo when we were playing here and now. For no real reason. I mean, it wasn't any... It, wasn't, it just had this sudden wave of emotion. It was great fun. I thought it was because I was singing. So. <laughs> <laughs> So tell those vacant visitors That this is my kingdom now 
So. Was there always a sense, though? I mean, 18 years is a long time to give us another Delamitri record, but, you know, you obviously left on good terms, and, and was there always a sense we will get back to this one day? We just well, don't know when. We didn't know, because we didn't think that we didn't think there'd be a demand for it. And then after we stopped, the, you know, because of streaming and everything, and all, everybody's earnings basically came out of the live... Mm. The, the live circuit so you know previously all the all the wedge had been in CDs and then that just drained out because it was streaming and file sharing and then all the wedge was in, was in gigs so we sort of missed that bit out and then by the time we got to the the 10s the 2010s the phone started ringing and promoters were going oh well, we'd definitely fancy doing a gig and that's kind of what kicked it off I think and then bringing us to the the new album Fatal Mistakes I mean you know the song list how did you whittle it down how, how many songs did you start with in terms of the, the sort of writing process? Well, I mean, about 40 or or, uh, wow. or so. I was, it kind of, it was fairly obvious which things were going to work um, with, you know, with this band. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, what I'm doing, I'm just, I'm starting to bore myself now, Ian. Can you, can you say something interesting? We're here for it. <laughs> <laughs> Despite a few COVID-related delays on releasing the record, we're actually quite lucky to have the album recorded. Is it true that you finished recording the day before lockdown? It is, yes. Just sheer coincidence, but yes. Was there a sense of urgency to sort of finish the recording of the album before what we saw as the inevitable happening? Well, we we, we, we had a sort of panic meeting at one point because we didn't know when they were going to shut the country down. So we had a lot of gear from Glasgow sitting in the middle of Worcestershire. And we thought we'd better get the gear out in case we get stuck. Uh, so we got the gear out on the Thursday and we were due to finish the album on the Saturday, which we did. We did the last overdub at like half midnight on the Saturday night and then scarpered on the Sunday and lockdown starting on the Monday. So that was really lucky. Uh, that we, So, we, you know, we recorded all those things with everybody in the room, so, which we couldn't have done post-lockdown. Uh, and then it got a bit tricky. Mixing was quite tricky and... Obviously, the album got rescheduled from the autumn to the beginning of the year, and then it got rescheduled to now. Um, so that was that was a victim of circumstances. But the recording of it, um, it was really fortuitous that we got it all in, all done before mm-hmm. lockdown. So in November 2020, I received an email from the Delamitri email list saying they had a pre-order set up for a brand new record, the seventh album, Fatal Mistakes. So I ordered the vinyl, which I'm still waiting on. But the pre-order purchase allowed me to hear the new single, Close Your Eyes and Think of England. Later in November, I received a second email saying that Dalimitri had set up a making music content page, which had short little videos about the writing, recording and inspiration of each of the songs, which got me very excited about the record during lockdown. And it had been about three years since Justin had released. This is my kingdom. Here's some of the audio from the pre-release videos. Close your eyes and think of England. Uh, I used to know somebody who said that whenever they had sex, they would just close their eyes and think of Scotland. Um, but for some reason, I'm often to close your eyes and think of England and became quite relevant a few years ago when we were writing songs for this, or a year or so ago when we were writing songs for this Delamitri album. I suppose it would be about a year since Justin Rock Close Your Eyes and Think of England. Um. Given what the song's about, which I think is pretty obvious, we are concerned that it might have lost some of its relevance by the time it was released, but rather depressingly, that doesn't seem to be the case. And I suppose that's testament to the power of Justin's songwriting. 
as much as to how things have unfolded. And it started off quite, well, it still is quite mournful, but it started off very mournful. So when we took it into rehearsal, we uh, we moved it up a key, which we did with, a, I think, about three three songs in this record, uh, just to make it a bit more like a rock band song. Uh, and it uh, became something more than I thought it would be, become... Uh, it's got a real sort of 70s, uh, quite sweet ballad vibe to it, which was not really the, the, my thoughts at all until we started rehearsing. So the last song on Fatal Mistakes continues just inside rabbit hole of resplendent right royal ranting with the song A Nation of Caners. So some more translation here. A caner is defined as... In a quote. A person who regularly indulges in excessive drinking or drug taking. The very next question on the Urban Dictionary listing was, is clunge a real word? Gonna have a quick tactical wank now. Then, when she puts some clunge around it, you'll be able to go for hours. Unusually for me, this started off with a bunch of lyrics that I just ranted into my phone. I immediately went to the guitar first, I think, and then the piano, because I had to find a rhythm that would just suit the the rhythm of the lyrics. Uh, so I just ended up doing something really simple. I just put the chord changes where the lyrics felt right, so that made it a bit of a nightmare to rehearse and record. I only felt I needed two chords. We could have probably done it on one chord. It was great fun recording this Nikanos. He did the whole thing, pretty much everything apart from the vocals as a live take. Took a while to get everybody to get the chord changes right, but we got there in the end. We just all had to work off lyric sheets that had little arrows stuck on saying go down to the E there and back up to the D there. I was thrashing both chords out on a um, a baritone guitar. Um, it's just kind of a big guitar that's down a fifth. It's got a slightly longer neck. Somewhere between a guitar and a bass. Beloved of Robert Smith and John Spencer of the John Spencer Blues Explosion. Um, it's pretty hard work playing that thing for eight minutes over and over again. Um, it's kind of a feat of endurance as much as a as much as a musical journey. Uh, you can kind of hear that in the in the recording. At one point I had to conduct Andy on the piano because none of us knew where the chord changes were unless you were staring at the lyric sheet. We're a nation of caners, excuses, explainers. We're wasting away every night, every day. Assuring ourselves we're blameless. I've everything had in their way. We use and we use, throw away and away. Cane in the plains, plain in the cane. Jed and 
in the pain Nothing's enough, nothing's enough I sniff on a cough and a fact to a flame Down in the foam and filling the drain Ravenous men, ravenous girls Ravage it all until nothing remains Junk and speed and candor, thirst for splendor. I binge, I bend and return to sender. Burn the canopy, churn the blender, rape the barley, bend the fender. Burn the embers, burn the embers. Cane and cane and cane dissenters, ream the renters, shame the campers, stamp the palms through. So my favourite song on the new record so far, and they always do change the deeper I dig on any album, but as it stands today, my favourite is Second Staircase. Second Staircase, I had this title in my book for years and years and years and always liked it. I was dabbling about one night with D minor, just late at night, you know, the television glowing with the mute button on, and uh, just leafed through the book, and uh, there it was, D minor and Second Staircase, another song that we took up a tone because it's too, it's a bit too low for my voice. You tend to write things, especially when you're writing late at night, um, down in the, in your boots, and when you take them to the band, they need brightened up. And the easiest way to do that is just raising my tone, but this is the original key anyway. Second staircase, uh, how does it start? D minor. <laughs> just really like the idea of there being a something secret a secret passageway in a in a house there is a second staircase leading from a chamber of my heart concealed behind the bookcase leading up into and the second staircase is tearing the house apart there's a secret now 
So I've just looked at the clock here. That's two hours of your life and about three weeks of my life gone. So that will be the end of my Delamitri and Justin Curry love story. And a little bit of a stop press on this. On June the 5th, 2021, Delamitri posted this on their Instagram page. Thanks to everybody who bought our album. We are in the top five at number five. Thanks, everybody. Much better than top six. I'm going to be wearing my rock star sunglasses all day as a celebration. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed my deep dig on Dalamitri and Justin Curry. And more importantly, I hope you check out, buy and support this great band. As I said, check out the Victims tab on the website for a Spotify list of all the great songs used in this episode. I stole most of the interviews from YouTube, but also pinched a bit from the Soda Jerker podcast and Ronan from Switchbox TV on YouTube. Check out their full interviews with Justin for some more curry in a hurry. And as always, thanks to Rob Dean at Hike My Kilt Studios and Paddy Cummings at Fingerprint Audio for web and tech help. And thanks and also apologies in advance to the band for stealing any content that I may not be allowed to reproduce. Any copyright breaches are fully intentional and done with much love from the bottom of my black heart. Check out the guys on Instagram, Dalamitri Official. There's a link there to buy the new record. Do it. It costs about four coffees or one curry. They have all the usual online poop too, Facebook and a website, etc. You can find them online easily enough. Please rate and review this podcast on the Purple Apple Podcast app if you're using iPhone or wherever you're listening and subscribe there too. And please share this episode if you enjoyed it. And if this is your first time listening and you want to tell me what I got wrong or missed in this free podcast that took me several weeks to grind together, you can email me at gofeckyegoodself at dot com forward slash this is my kingdom dot cockgoblin forward slash poop and I shall get back to you as soon as Scotland win the World Cup. But seriously, you can follow the podcast on Instagram or Facebook, a rock and roll rabbit hole podcast, and check out all the normal episodes and bonus episodes on the website, arockandrollrabbithole.com. Check out the Golden Magic tab on the website for an ISO performance of Dalamitri playing All Hail Blind Love off the new record. And I'll be back next week with a semi-normal but usual episode. And there's some great songs and great stories next week. I hope you can check it out. And let me know if you thought this was a good listen or not. I may do more one artist deep digs. Might do Rival Sons or Body Jar or The Ramones or something. If you are in the UK, Delamitri are touring in September and October of 2021 and some Glasgow dates in December. And I would definitely check out a gig if you're in that part of the world. I looked at getting tickets to the December shows in Scotland, but obviously with the plague, international travel is a bit tricky. I actually called the Australian government COVID hotline to see what is allowed, and they said that I would need an essential travel permit for which I wouldn't qualify for. I argued that seeing Dalamitri before I die is essential, as 25 years is too long to wait for a curry. Thanks again, and I'll leave you with this. See ya. I'm Justin from Dalamitri. And I am Ian from said Delamitri. And this is our latest single. You can't go back.